Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. So this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, uh, looking at the story of two friends who meet Jesus and their lives are forever changed. So it's early in Jesus' ministry. He's traveling around Galilee, and he's handpicking a group of disciples who will spend the next three years learning from him and following him as their rabbi, literally walking in his footsteps. Uh, so, so far in John's Gospel, Jesus has four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he's about to add two more today, Philip and Philip's friend Nathaniel, who is most likely the same guy who's also called Bartholomew. So in total, we know that Jesus is going to call 12 young Jewish men to be his first group of disciples, and 12 Jewish men because they represented the 12 sons of Jacob, who would later become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it's a sign that God is calling for himself a new Israel. Like these 12 men are the beginning of a new humanity. So today we're going to meet disciples number five and six, Philip and Nathaniel. So uh, in the passage that Gary just read for us from John chapter one, Philip meets Jesus first and uh, then picking up in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip's excited about meeting Jesus, so excited in fact, that he goes out and he finds his friend Nathanael, and he says, We found him, we finally found the one that we've been waiting for. But here's what's really interesting that that's not actually the way that the gospel writer tells the story of how Jesus and Philip met. Philip says that he found Jesus, but that's not actually what John says. Look back at the beginning of the story in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip says that he found Jesus, but John says that Jesus found Philip. Now, it may not seem like a big deal, or maybe you think that I'm kind of stretching this a bit too far or reading too much into the text, but I don't think so. I actually think it makes a huge difference. Does Philip find Jesus, or does Jesus find Philip? Remember when um, Lieutenant Dan asks Forrest, have you found Jesus yet, Gump? And Forrest says, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. I think a lot of us live with this idea that Christianity is about looking for Jesus. We talk about searching for God, exploring spirituality, finding faith, seeking truth. My friend Josh Butler, in his book, The Pursuing God, says it this way. We often act as if God's lost, treating the Almighty as if he's gone missing, our creator crouching in the cosmos behind a couch somewhere, 
playing hide-and-seek and waiting for us to follow any trail of breadcrumbs we can find to pick up the hunt and discover the divine. Doesn't that sound familiar? Like so much of our life is spent wondering where God is. So many of our prayers feel like we're sending out smoke signals and satellites into the sky, hoping heaven will respond. Or we open our Bibles, searching for truth, hoping to find something meaningful or inspirational. And then for so many of us, after a while, we just get tired of looking for Jesus, worn out on wondering where God is, sick of feeling like no one's listening to our prayers. And so we either give up entirely or we resort to just going through the motions, but feeling guilty for not trying harder. But what if, like Philip, we have it backward? Josh wonders, what if God's the one pursuing us? And our job is not to discover the light, but to simply step out of the shadows. Not to hit the trailhead on the hunt, but to give up our hiding spot in the bushes. Not to ramp up our search for God, but to receive God's search for us. So maybe John is trying to teach us something pretty huge here. When he emphasizes that it wasn't actually Philip who found Jesus, but Philip who was found by Jesus. Maybe we too are the ones who are lost and need to be found. So here's today's epiphany. Following Jesus isn't about our pursuit of God. It's about God's pursuit of us. Try this. When you hear me say the phrase, the pursuit of God, is the first thing that comes into your mind your pursuit of God or God's pursuit of you? The Bible teaches that Jesus reveals a God who relentlessly comes after our restless hearts. It's all about his pursuit of the world he loves. Think about way back at the beginning of the biblical narrative. God creates this good world where humanity flourishes in right relationship with him and with one another. And then, as we know, humans choose to believe the lie that God actually isn't good and that they can't trust him. And so rather than living in his world according to his ways, humanity rejects God's love and begins searching for life in places other than him. Sin enters the world. But remember how God responds? Do Adam and Eve realize what they've done and go searching for God to make things right with him? It's not what happens. Here's what actually happens. Then, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? See, from the very beginning of the story of God and his people, God is the seeker, the pursuer, 
the one who's looking for us. And if you think about it, this is actually one of the things that makes Christianity unique among all religions. In every other religious system, people pursue God, hoping that through good behavior or keeping rituals or doing good works or other efforts, they will be accepted by pursuing God. But in Christianity, we have a pursuing God. Maybe you remember at some point seeing the gospel presented like this. God and humans are separated by sin, and the chasm is too big for us to cross, but fortunately Jesus went to the cross and became a bridge so that we can travel to the other side and be with God again. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember as a little kid in Sunday school seeing this picture, and my main question was, if the cross is a bridge, how are we supposed to get over that middle part? My friend Scott Erickson, the artist, captured the problem like this. Crosses don't actually make great bridges. But do you see the real problem with this analogy? What direction is traffic flowing? Like if this picture is supposed to convey the gospel, it's got it backward again. It shows us as the ones who are trying to get to God, but he's just too far away. We're the ones venturing out over the canyon, desperately trying to make our way towards God. Is that the gospel? Is that the way the story goes? We just got done celebrating Christmas, and I'm pretty sure that's not what happened. Jesus isn't the way we get to God. Jesus is God's way of coming to us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who makes the trip our way. There's an old poem that was written in 1893 by an Englishman named Francis Thompson. And it's called The Hound of Heaven. And it imagines God as a hunting dog who's chasing down this rabbit. And it's one of those poems that you probably need a dictionary to read but it's super powerful, and it's told from the perspective of the rabbit. Here's the first few lines. I fled him, down the nights and down the days. I fled him, down the arches of the years. I fled him, down the labyrinthine ways. Of my own mind and in the midst of tears, I hid from him an running laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped, and shot precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. God is the hound of heaven. His love is on the prowl. His grace bears down on us, calling us to turn and to receive him. Josh says, as his footsteps draw closer, the sound of his voice breaks through the silence, and the light of his encroaching presence begins to pierce the darkness. The question we're faced with is not whether we've been good enough, jumped high enough, or sought hard enough. The question is, do we want to be found? Think about the parables 
Jesus tells to describe the kingdom of God in Luke 15. There's the story of a shepherd who loses one of his sheep and leaves the 99 to go and find it. There's the story of the woman who loses a valuable coin and turns her house upside down to find it. And then there's the story of a father whose son asks for an early inheritance and then he goes off and squanders it all. In all three stories, who's the one that's lost and who's the one that's looking? Well, clearly, Jesus intends for us to recognize that God is the shepherd, God is the woman, God is the father, and we are the sheep, the coin, the prodigal son. So Christianity isn't about finding Jesus. It's about being found by Jesus. And again, the question is, do you want to be found? So I'm sure you get the point I'm trying to make, but you're probably wondering what difference this actually makes. There are actually tons of different ways that we could take this, but I want to focus on just one this morning, and that's prayer. How does the idea of the pursuing God change the way we pray? One of my favorite definitions of prayer comes from Eugene Peterson. He says that prayer is answering God. In fact, answering God is the name of Peterson's book on prayer. And the idea is that when we speak to God in prayer, we aren't reaching out to Him. We're simply responding to what He's already said. We aren't the ones initiating contact with Him. We're the ones answering His call. Peterson says, we have to understand the overwhelming previousness of God's speech to our prayer. So, for so many of us, the only way we've ever been taught to pray is by coming up with our own prayers, telling God how we feel, asking God for things we want. The only kind of prayer that's ever been modeled for us is the kind where we do all the talking. But when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, he actually gave them a prayer to recite. He said, when you pray, say this. And then he gave them the Lord's Prayer. It's his prayer, not ours. And so when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he gives them the prayer. He doesn't just say, pour out your heart to God. He says, I want you to recite these words. Go in your room, close the door when no one else is looking. He wanted these words to shape them, to form them, to nourish them, and to give them substance for life. He wanted his words to become theirs. And so if we're going to learn how to pray, maybe we need to first figure out how to listen. Maybe what we need are actually some simple prayers to recite, rather than trying to come up with something original. Maybe we already have everything we need in God's Word and in God's world to perceive and attend to His presence.
So I know some of you have wondered why we have introduced so many pre-written prayers into our worship services, as opposed to spontaneous freestyle prayers. Well, the reason is that corporate worship, or liturgy, is the main way we learn to pray. Prayer isn't just self-expression, although it certainly includes that. Prayers about answering God and being formed into the image of Christ. So this is why the Psalms are so essential to the Christian life and worship. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible and they are meant not to be read, but to be prayed. So if you're somebody like me who struggles to pray on my own, I want to encourage you to learn to pray the Psalms. Let God's words become your words. In the last battle, C.S. Lewis tells of the time when Eustace and Jill are trying to escape a mob of bullies and they start crying out, Aslan, 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 hoping that the great lion would come and rescue him. But he doesn't come. And so they take off running and they find this old doorway and they crawl through it and they find themselves magically transported to Narnia. And there they meet Aslan. And he tells Jill that he has a very special job for her to do. It's the reason that he called her to come to him. And Jill's confused and she says, nobody called me. She says that she was the one who'd been calling his name. And Aslan replies, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. Antioch, will you listen for the call of Christ this week? Do you want to be found? Are you willing to step out from the shadows and receive God's search for you? God loves you so much. He gave up everything to come and get you. So don't let your sin stand between you and Him. Instead, let Him find you wherever you are. Love you. Have a great week.